Well, let's read together from God's Word as we find it in the book of Deuteronomy and chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, it's page 181 if you're using the church Bible. And we're going to begin reading at the first verse. We're going to be looking particularly at verses 4 to 9 this evening in preparation for uh, the baptism uh, at the end of the service. But let's read together now from verse 1 of Deuteronomy 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, 
and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please turn back in God's Word to that passage that we have read together already from the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and in particular verses 4 to 9. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy was written by Moses when Israel was camped on the plains of Moab, right on the very border of Canaan. They're preparing to enter into the promised land. This is the end point of their journey. God has brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He's brought them through the wilderness. That whole uh, evil generation that rebelled against God has been purged. Uh, they have died, and now God is about, about to bring the people of Israel into this land that he has promised to them. But it is a place that is steeped in paganism. On every side in Canaan, there are many, many people who worship false gods. And these people, or peoples, because there are multiple peoples in the promised land, these peoples are going to be a massive temptation and a snare to the Israelites as they go in and live in that depraved and immoral culture. And so before they go in, Moses summons Israel to a solemn assembly for covenant renewal. A little bit like what we had uh, not that long ago in our own denomination, uh, a solemn service of co covenant renewal when we rededicate ourselves to the Lord because of all the pressures and temptations uh, and, and wickedness that is in the world around us. We're, we're nailing our colors to the mast and we're saying, this is what we believe, this is who we are, and this is how we're going to live. 
And that's really what's going on here on the plains of Moab. The people of Israel are reminding themselves of and recommitting themselves to the truth. The truth about God and the truth about how God demands his people should live. And Deuteronomy is just really the written account of this solemn covenant renewal ceremony. It follows a, a standard pattern that we don't need to worry too much about this evening. Uh, first of all, Moses proclaims the terms of the covenant, uh, the law that God has given to the people. Uh, chapter 5 records that law, the Ten Commandments. That's really the summary of the moral law of God. And then that is followed by an explanation and an application of the Ten Commandments, what that looks like in practice. And that's from chapter 6, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 26, verse 15. It's all explanation of God's law. But that explanation begins here in our passage with a statement of purpose in verses 2 and 3. Moses says that the Lord wants his people to fear him. That means he wants them to live every part of life in reverence for him. It doesn't mean that we go around quaking, uh, terrified of this awesome and holy God. It means that we live our lives in reverence for him. And what Moses is giving us here, he says, is a blueprint for a rounded, happy human life. Just look again at verses 2 and 3. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. Why? So that it will spoil your life and make you really, really miserable and, and you'll have a rotten time? No. Verse 3 says that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. This law that I'm giving you, or that I'm reminding you of, God says, it's not to make you miserable. It's not to spoil your life in any way. It is to enhance your life. It is to give you the best possible life that a human being could ever have. It's to make sure that your lives are as good and as fulfilled and as happy and as productive as they can possibly be. The people of God today are encamped not on the borders of Canaan, but we are living right in the midst of depraved and immoral cultures. And idolatry is all around us. Pluralism, materialism, hedonism, you name it, 
It's in the very atmosphere that we breathe. And so we need to hear this call this evening. We need to hear the voice of our covenant Lord setting out the truth and calling us to renewed commitment. And our children and our children's children need to be immunized against error with truth. And what better time to do that than at the celebration of a sacrament? In fact, today, the celebration of two sacraments, the Lord's Supper this morning and baptism this evening. Every baptism is a reminder to us all as Christians that we belong to the Lord, that He has put His name on us, that we belong to Him, and that we're not free to live as we please or as other people do. And I want us to focus particularly on verses 4 to 9 of Deuteronomy 6. Uh, This portion of Deuteronomy is uh, called the Shema. Uh, It's the Hebrew word for hear, because that's the first word in Hebrew uh, of verse 4, hear, or O Israel. The Jews recited uh, these words twice every day. Uh, Orthodox Jews hope to die with these words on their lips. And what Moses is giving us here in these verses, I think, is a beautiful snapshot of what a covenant home ought to look like, a place where the Lord is known and honored. And there are at least three characteristics that he mentions here. The first in verse 4 is faith. Faith. The word here is used in Deuteronomy to introduce important truths. It comes again and again. But here we have the most important, the most fundamental truth of all. Here is the truth of what God is like. And I think that that in itself is very striking and very important, that that Moses starts here. He's going to expound the law. He's reminded them of the Ten Commandments, and he's going to spend the next number of chapters expounding the commandments. But this is where he begins. This is the first thing that he calls the people to understand and think about. He begins with God himself. In other words, before we think about obeying God's commandments, we need to understand something about God himself. Why is that? Why not just go straight into explaining the commandments? Well, for one thing, the law is really just an extended description of God's character, isn't it? The commandments, we thought about this some months ago when we were going through the Ten Commandments. The the, the law of God is just the outworking. It is the expression of who He is. It's not some impersonal code that has just been plucked randomly from the universe. It is the expression of God's holy character. So we need to understand who God is before we can really understand the law. But it especially shows us here that we can only relate properly to the law when we're relating properly to God. Why should we keep all these commands that Moses is going to expound? 
why shouldn't we worship other gods? Why shouldn't we go around murdering people that are in our way? Why shouldn't we covet? It's because of what verse 4 tells us about the God who gave these commandments. What does it say in verse 4? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's why we should keep His commandments. Because the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There are different ways of translating that Hebrew phrase. Uh, I think the ESV margin gives maybe two or three alternatives. But whatever it means, at the very least, these words speak about the unity of God and the uniqueness of God. Uh, And Moses is saying right here, right up at the front, this is the God you need to understand. This is the God who gave this law. This is the God we worship. He is one speaks of his unity. There is one God. It's not, there are not many gods. There's not a committee of gods. It's not that there's one God for the sea, and there's another God for the mountains, and there's another God for the cities, and there's another God for the rain, and you have to try and figure out which one to pray to, uh, and, and, and when there's some kind of conflict, how you resolve that. No, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And as well as his unity, it speaks about his uniqueness. This God is utterly different from all the other false gods that are worshipped by the nations. And of course, the Israelites had had many, many opportunities to learn about the uniqueness of God by this stage, that he alone is the true God. Again and again in the Exodus, the Lord has showed himself to be unrivaled, The plagues are like a competition between the true God and all the false gods that are worshipped by the Egyptians. You remember how in each plague, God takes on a different God of Egypt and shows that He is supreme and that He is in control. When He parted the Red Sea and brought the Israelites safely through on dry land and then swallowed up the Egyptian army, when he brought them through the wilderness and provided for them, again and again he has shown that he is unique and that there is no other God like him. And now they're about to go into Canaan and they're going to see it again because their God is going to bring down the walls of Jericho. And he's not going to do it by hurling great rocks at the walls. No, the people just need to walk around the walls doing exactly what God tells them to do, blow their trumpets, and God will make these mighty walls fall. He's going to make the sun stand still in the sky so that Israel can carry on routing their enemies. Again and again, he's going to show that he is unique, that the Lord our God the Lord is one. He is the one and only God. In spite of being surrounded by all kinds of false gods when they go into Israel, after all that they've seen and all that they've experienced, they should never have been tempted to idolatry. And that's true for us today, isn't it? In our multicultural, multi-faith society, where there are all kinds of religions on every side. But we shouldn't be tempted. We shouldn't doubt. We shouldn't waver in our commitment to the one true God. Seeing these other so-called gods 
up close should just reinforce our trust in the true and living God all the more. There is no other God worthy of our worship and our love. So the Shema, in the way that it begins, teaches God's covenant people that they need to have a right view of God before anything else. Get this straight in your mind, who God is and what He is like. Everything else depends on that. If your view of God is wrong, then your whole view of life will be wrong as well. And if the Israelites begin to think for a moment that perhaps other gods might exist, or perhaps other gods might be worth praying to, let's hedge our bets and let's make a few sacrifices to Baal just in case then they're going to fall, aren't they, into idolatry. They need to get their theology right. They need to get their doctrine right. They need to have orthodox faith. And that's why Moses begins where he does. Theology and doctrine are not just academic. The things that you're studying in the adult Bible class, looking at the Westminster Confession, it is practical. It is to protect your soul because you need to understand who God is and what He is like. God's covenant people need to be characterized by sound, biblical understanding of God. And that's true today as much as it ever was. You, if you're a Christian, you need to have an intelligent understanding of God. It doesn't mean that you have to have a PhD in theology. It doesn't mean that you have to have read 50 books every year on theology. But it does mean that you are striving to maximize your capacity. God gives us all different capacities for understanding. Whatever ability He's given you, whether it is modest or great, whatever capacity He has given you to understand, you want to be maximizing it, stretching it, stretching yourself, pushing yourself, seeking to understand God more and more. Isn't that what Peter commands? In 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. As you look back over the last year, over the last five years, can you say that you have grown in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Often Christians want practical sermons they want to be given things to do, things that they can go away and put into practice. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that sermons shouldn't be practical after 11 years here. Hopefully, uh, I don't need to persuade you of that. But first, there must be knowledge. There must be understanding of who God is. And this foundation is essential for all the other components of the covenant family that we see in these verses. Our homes must be places where God is known, where we talk to our children about the Lord, that He is a person and not just a proposition. 
And this protects us against legalism, which is the great danger, I think, for churches like ours. The temptation is that we give our children rules, that, that we give them a list of do's and don'ts, and that's what religion becomes for them. And we don't start here where Moses starts and saying, let me tell you about the Lord. Before we get into what He wants you to do and how He wants you to live, let's understand who God is. Why is lying so wicked? It won't be strange to our children if they know that our God is a God of truth, whose words are pure, that there is no darkness in Him at all. Why are we not to covet? It's because we believe in a God who is a wise Father and who gives us what we need. He knows what we need, and He gives us what we need, and we're to be satisfied with that. Faith, orthodox faith, is where Moses begins. But then a second component, much more briefly, in verse 5, is love. Love. A doctrinally correct understanding of God is not enough in itself. More is required. The Pharisees of Jesus' day, you remember, they had a very accurate doctrinal knowledge about God. Their knowledge of Scripture was unparalleled. In many ways, their doctrine, their theology, and Jesus' theology were not very far apart at all. They, they had knowledge. They had orthodox faith but they didn't have heart love for the Lord. And their relationship to God was entirely based on duty and works. But it's clear here, isn't it, in verse 5, that God looks for much more from His people than just theological orthodoxy. He wants love. And he's descri He describes that love in the most passionate terms imaginable. No Valentine's card or trivial pop song uh, comes near to this. We are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's what God wants from you. He doesn't just want you to know things about Him that are true in your head. He wants you to love Him with all that you are, with every last fiber of your being. Every ounce of your strength is to be harnessed and poured into loving God. Your whole person is to be unreservedly devoted to the Lord. Every part of you, every gift, every faculty, everything that you are is to be given over in love to the Lord your God. Your love for Him is to be greater than your love for anything else or any other person in this world. And in a covenant home, children need to see not just that their parents are orthodox and that they know their doctrine and they can cite the confession and that they can uh, rhyme off by memory the, the, the catechism 
and, and, and ream off verses of Scripture. Nothing wrong with that, but that's not enough. Children need to see that their parents sincerely love the Lord more than anything else, that we delight in Him, that we delight in His worship, that we delight in His Word. We're not just reading it out of a sense of duty because that's something we have to do, we have to tick that box, but we love to read His Word, that we love His people. We're loyal to them. We overlook any number of offenses. We forgive without a moment's hesitation when we're sinned against. That we love His day. That the Sabbath day isn't a trial. It's not a, we're not, they don't see their parents trying to get away with as much as possible frustrated because they're not able to do more. We delight in these things because we delight in Him. Our children need to see that we make public worship and private worship and family worship our priorities. Again, not because these are little Protestant rituals that we've inherited from our ancestors, but that we, we do these things because we love God, and we love going to meet with God, and we love worshiping God. As they hear us pray, they should be able to tell that it's not an empty ritual of meaningless cliches, but that it really is the natural overflow of what's in our hearts, done with reverence and done with joy. They need to hear in our tone of voice as we speak about the Lord that we do it naturally and that we do it warmly and that we do it personally with love and not with resentment. We want our children to grow up knowing that their parents really love the Lord. We want to model love for the Lord to our children, that we have a living relationship with Him that we don't relate to God as if He's some distant, aloof, cold figure who's constantly interfering in our lives, who's kind of got an itchy trigger finger and He's just waiting to punish whenever something goes wrong so we had better keep on the right side of Him. We don't ever want to give that impression to our, parents, to our children. Think about how, if you're not doing it already, or think about how you can do it better, how can we communicate this to our children? Let them say whatever else they say about us. My parents, they really do love the Lord. They don't do it perfectly. They don't do it as consistently as they should. But I do not doubt for one second that they love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. So faith and love and then thirdly, obedience. Obedience in verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That follows on from the second point, doesn't it? If we love the Lord, 
with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength, well then, we will love His commandments. If His commandments come from Him, if, if they spring from His heart, if they're the expression of who He is, well then, obviously, if we love the Lord, we'll love His commandments. These commandments is a reference back to chapter 5, to the Ten Commandments. It reminds us of what Jesus says in John fourteen fifteen, where He says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. Love and obedience are not in conflict or intention in any way. Obedience is how we express love to the Lord. Or as John puts it in 1 John 5, 3, this is love for God to obey His commands, and His commands are not burdensome. And that's partly what this verse means, I think. These commands are to be on our hearts. They are to be precious to God's people. They are to be highly regarded and warmly loved. They are to be intimately known and understood. We talk about knowing something off by heart, don't we? If you know something by heart, then you know it inside out. And that's what Moses says should be the case with God's commands, His laws. We should know them by heart. They should be on our hearts. In other words, if you're a Christian, you don't have a vague passing acquaintance with God's laws, but you have a deep knowledge of them. You live by every single word that comes from the mouth of God. You hang on His every word. You want to know it all. You don't want to miss a single thing that He says. It's all there, hidden in your heart, as the psalmist puts it. And Moses says that's what love for God looks like. If you want to know what love for God, if you want to know if you love God, well, here's how you can tell. It's not an abstract notion. It's not a vague feeling. It's expressed in loving obedience to all of the Lord's commandments. John says, if we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. If you say that you love God and yet you don't do what God commands, then you are fooling yourself. Those who love God, they know what He says and they do it. So if we love God, We'll pray, because He tells us to pray. It's not really something that should be any question about. If we love God, then we will be fully involved in the work of the church. We won't be floating around on the periphery, dipping our feet in and out when it suits us. No, God says that we're to be completely involved in the work of the church. And if we love Him, then we'll do it. It means that we'll support mission and we'll be doing evangelism in our community. It means that we'll show mercy to the poor and the oppressed. It means that we'll confess our sins to one another, that we'll forgive one another, that we'll encourage one another. It means that we'll keep the Sabbath day holy. It means that we will be scrupulous about the truth. It means that we won't covet. We'll do all these things and everything else that the Lord says, because we love Him. 
And we won't just do them with gritted teeth. We'll do these things gladly. That's what it looks like. That's what it means for the commandments of God to be on our hearts. Not just in our heads, but on our hearts. We'll do them sincerely for the right reasons, not just for the sake of appearances. And that's so important, isn't it, with our children? Because children can see through hypocrisy so quickly. They need to see that we genuinely have God's commandments on our hearts. Keeping the Sabbath day, is that something that you do half-heartedly and grudgingly? Yes, you keep it, but you resent that you have to do it and that you're not allowed to do all these things. And maybe you make it clear by comments that you make or the way that you go about it that you're not really enjoying the Sabbath day. I want to show our children by our words and by our manner that the Lord's day is one of the greatest blessings and gifts and kindnesses that we could possibly have. Say to your children regularly, isn't God so kind and good to give us this whole day, this special day, every week to praise Him and learn about Him? In our giving, let's teach our children by our example what a cheerful, generous giver looks like. The Lord tells us to give. What does it mean to have that command on our hearts? Why, why not try having a family project? Why not say, we're not going to have any sweets, any chocolate, any coffee. And I don't say that lightly. For the next week or two, and the money that we would have spent on coffee and chocolate, which might be quite considerable in some cases, we're going to take that money and we're going to give it to the work of mission instead. That's what it means for God's commandments to be on our hearts. We need to let our children see that we are glad to obey. We want to model repentance and forgiveness in our homes because that's what it means to have that command on our hearts. So if you snap at your husband or your wife in front of your children, then you need to repent in front of your children. I'm not saying that you need to rehearse every argument that you've ever had with your spouse in private, but if you snap, if you lose your temper, if you're mean or snide or short with your wife or husband in front of your children, then repent in front of your children and forgive one another in front of your children. Model it. Demonstrate it. This is what it means to have God's commandments on our hearts and not just in a book to study when we go to the adult Bible class. So faith and love and obedience. And the result of all of this is the Lord's rich blessing. The rest of chapter 6 is a picture of that. Verse 18, You shall do what is right and good, in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Verse 24, the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes 
to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that He might preserve us alive as we are this day, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as He has commanded us. If you do this, faith, love, obedience, God says, I have all this blessing for you, that it may go well with you. This is for your good. And that's true today as well. When we build our lives on the solid rock of Christ and His words, our house stands firm, even when there are storms crashing all around. An individual or a family that builds their life on Christ cannot fall. So let's found ourselves on these things and look for God's blessing in Christ as we build our families according to the covenant pattern that's set before us here. Faith, love, and obedience. Amen. I'd like to uh, turn your attention again uh, just for a few moments to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, to verses 7 to 9 uh, in particular now, uh, following on from what we've been thinking about, uh, these foundations of faith and love and obedience, which are to be characteristic of the covenant family. Everything that we've said so far is for everyone, uh, for all believers, whether, Christian, whether parents or not. But these verses, 7 to 9, are particularly for parents. They're particularly for Mike and Inga this evening because parents are given the awesome responsibility before God of teaching God's commandments to their children. Uh, the church helps with that, of course. The church has a supporting, reinforcing role, but the primary responsibility for teaching God's commandments to children is given to parents. Uh, we are the ones who have by far the most influence in shaping our children from their birth. Uh, we're with them constantly in their most impressionable and formative years. They trust us completely. They believe whatever we tell them. And that means that there is a huge potential there for good or for evil. So what is the parent's responsibility uh, as far as God's commandments are concerned? Well, Moses says we are to teach them. Uh, we're not to leave it to Sabbath school to do it or to CY leaders or anyone else. They only have a little bit of time each week with our children. But it's in the home from the parents that the vast majority of teaching of God's commandments is to take place. And what does that look like? Well, Moses says in verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children. Uh, literally, you are to repeat them to your children. Uh, that's how much of teaching of children is done, isn't it? It's just by repeating the same thing over and over again, whether it's good manners. Say please, say thank you. What do you say? Did you say thank you? Uh, or hygiene, did you wash your hands? Did you wash your hands? Did, did you wash your hands? Or grammar, 
mummy and I, not mummy and me. And we say these things over and over and over. We repeat these things. We drum these things into our children because we think they're important. So how much more persistent should we be when it comes to the commandments of God that are on our hearts? The commandments of this God that we love with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, we are to teach these things diligently to our children. You are to repeat these things above all, whatever else you might teach her. These things you are to repeat to Lydia over and over again. We need to repeat them. We don't assume that because we have taught our children once about lying or greed or coveting, that we don't need to do that anymore, that, that that's covered, that that's done. We need to repeat them again and again. And then Moses says that God's commands and teaching God's commandments is to be a living, natural part of everyday life. It's not just something we do at formal set times when you sit in your house, Moses says. But it's something we're to do as we go about our daily life, when you walk by the way. So as you're driving along in the car with your child and you see a beautiful sunset or a beautiful sunrise or beautiful hills, talk about the God who made these things. These are beautiful, aren't they? Isn't that an amazing view? Just think how much more amazing the God who made these things must be. Somebody drives dangerously at 100 miles an hour past you on the motorway. They're doing something dangerous. Talk about, about commandment number six, how this is breaking the commandment about murder, endangering his life and the life of others. You see a rainbow in the sky. Talk about it as you drive along, as you walk along. Do you remember what the rainbow means? What is the message that it's sending us from heaven? As we sit at home and we're watching television with our children, don't just let it wash over you. When there are things that are said that are undermining God's truth, turn it off and talk about it with your children. It doesn't have to be a lecture, just a question or a brief comment or two to make our children think. What's wrong with what that person just said? What should that person have done in that program that we just watched. Talk about a film after supper. Playing games together in the home uh, is another way of teaching the commandments of God. You can teach Lydia to be a good sport. You can teach her about fairness. Teach her about how to be considerate of others, how to be a good winner, as well as how to be a good loser. As you walk along, teach your child the commandments of God. And then Moses says, when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, all the time, from the beginning of the day to the end of the day, not just on the Lord's day, not just in family worship, we're always looking for opportunities to impress God's commandments upon our children. And that's a challenge because we're not always in the mood. We're not always ready mentally for the challenge of that discussion with one of our children. Uh, we need to put our own convenience to one side, and we need to be ready at any moment to have a conversation with our children about the laws of God, taking the opportunity to impress them, 
to teach them diligently, to repeat them to them. And as we do this, we can say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we have promised here this evening to pray for you uh, as you have promised to do this, Mike and Inga. Uh, and I know that the people here in Trinity will do that. They will be praying for you faithfully, uh, that God will help you and give you the wisdom that you need to impress these things, to teach these things diligently to this little one that the Lord has given to you. Amen. As we stand, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this promise that you have committed yourself to being the helper of your people, the one who is the maker of the universe, the one to whom all power and might and strength and majesty and wisdom belong. We thank you, O God, that you are our helper. We thank you that you will be Lydia's helper. We pray that you will be Mike and Inga's helper as they seek to keep the vows that they have made before you this night. And so we pray, Lord God, that you will bless them, that you will keep them, that you will help them as a family as they serve you in all things. Watch over them, we pray, in their going out and in their coming in. May they bring glory to you in every part of their life together and their work for you as a family. And what we pray for them, we pray for every home, every family represented here. We pray that you will increase our faith, our love, and our obedience. Help us, we pray, uh, to build our lives on these things more and more. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.